an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I'm uh, faced with a bit of a dilemma here because uh, in the excellent and very interesting uh, talk that Professor Barr gave, um, I have to respond in 10 minutes to uh, a talk that brought together special and general relativity, a little bit of quantum mechanics, which is a bit easier, uh, comments from the schoolmen and from the church fathers, and various other interesting things. And I have to do this in 10 minutes. Um, so I guess, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but John, I have to tell you, it's fine. Because, because of my verbal uh, inertia, I as a physicist will bend sp space time. And I will f finish my talk yesterday. <laughs> so. I'm going to take a different tact here, because uh, with the latter half of Professor Barr's presentation, I pretty much agree. I have a little bit more to say, though, on the first half. Um, and it actually was raised by Professor Carroll uh, obliquely, um, and that's the problem of reification. Okay, that's, that is a fairly serious issue that needs to be addressed. Now, let me, I have to set the tone here a little bit from the philosophy of nature. The natural sciences, and I often refer to them as the modern empirical sciences, or you, you'll hear me say MESs, are the most fundamental form of knowledge of reality humans have. We are by nature rational animals, and we obtain our knowledge through the senses. All human knowledge, with the possible exception, of course, of mystical knowledge, comes to us through our five external senses. And all the information we obtain through our senses is accessible in some form of empirical observation, followed by measurement, correlation into mathematical formalisms, which then permit us to uh, test hypotheses, make predictions, which makes the natural sciences uh, so strong in what they do. However, while most fundamental, modern empirical scientific knowledge is neither the only form of knowledge, nor the most important. And, Neither are sciences limited to the natural sciences. Metaphysics, philosophy writ large, and theology are fully-fledged sciences in their own right. Employing logical terms of art, each science has its own subject matter, or something called a proper object, and material objects. Each has methodologies appropriate to its subject matter, and each demands demonstration to characterize the knowledge obtained as scientific, that is, certain knowledge through causes. A more robust and revealing definition of science is, quote, immediate intellectual knowledge obtained through demonstration. And it's the word immediate here that's important because it characterizes the process by which we humans rise far above the merely sensible knowledge we obtain. We utilize our senses to then reason to higher immaterial verities. In other words, while all knowledge uh, comes through the senses, and Professor Barr alluded to this, not all knowledge is sensory knowledge. To reason well, is to reason often and correctly, which means scientific reasoning writ large is an intellectual virtue, in fact. No human is well-formed without developing the virtue of science. I provide my students two examples to help bring this home. The first is the example of stealing candy from a baby. We can, of course, all, when we come on upon the crime scene, we hear the howling of the baby and the screeching of the tire of the getaway car. Okay. We can smell the pungent odor of the candy. We can lick it and taste it if we want. We can touch its tackiness. And we see 
the hoodlum, and the red face of the baby. But what else do we see? We see something called the privation of justice. We've reasoned beyond what is merely accessible to the modern empirical sciences. The second example that I give is I take a survey in my class. I asked the number of students I have, or whatever they are, I asked them, how many of you are budding seismologists or work in seismology? Now, here at this university, of course, that's zero. But in the average kind of 100 collection of people, you would get, may get one or two hands. In California, you may, you may get 15. Okay. <laughs> so very few. I next asked them, how many of you have experienced an earthquake? So here at Franciscan, I get about 10 to 12, sometimes 15 hands. I then asked them, how many of you have experienced motion? How many of you know what motion is? They all look at each other quizzically, and all the hands go up. Now that's an important consideration. The point is that, uh, that motion, meaning local motion, which is a species of change, cannot be reduced to velocity, nor can it be reduced to its mathematical descriptor, the first derivative of position with respect to time. Furthermore, philosophy reflects upon experiences common to all people. The natural sciences have a much more narrow group of people studying quite thin slices of reality. Physicists study material objects and physical phenomena in motion. But philosophers of nature do not, have, uh, do, do not have it so easy. They must understand and define motion in its broadest sense as experientially access, uh, accessible to all human beings. Its subject matter is all changeable beings. For example, I can, and am, I can be moved by the beauty of my wife. Now, that is not something that you're going to understand through physics, nor even through biology. Nor is it merely a poetic metaphor. Employing the terms of the natural sciences, I would say I've changed my state. Employing the terms of the philosophy of nature, I potentially used, uh, knew my beautiful wife, but then was reduced to actually knowing her. Without the broader perspective of the philosophy of nature, and I hasten to add, without the support of theological truths expounded in the universities of medieval Western Europe, the narrow work of the natural sciences would indeed be impossible today. The modern empirical sciences rely almost exclusively upon what are called univocal definitions, which, while they may embellish and deepen our understanding of such concepts as time or motion, they cannot possibly topple the broader philosophical understandings of these concepts, nor have they, in contrast to what some people may claim. It is partly for this reason that Newton famously quipped, if I have seen further, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. What he was referring to was not the narrow confines of the modern empirical sciences and their discoveries, but natural philosophical reflections upon motion and time as such, including the work of such people as Jean Bourdin, who solved the, uh, who solved the problem of impetus, the first critical step in understanding modern concept of inertia fully 350-odd years before Newton, and who is indeed the true initiator of, the modern of, of modern classical physics. While the concept of inertia was alien to Aristotle, who viewed all motion as maintained by an external force, um, rather than the correct understanding of motion as an imminent property of a physical object, Burden's solutions did not topple Aristotle's definition of motion or change, nor his definition of time. Asking what, now getting to Newton, asking what motion is, is not to ask how to measure it. 
And the same applies to space-time as a mathematically, a very useful mathematical tool. Time is the metric of motion. It is numbered motion. Motion is only possible because material being, uh, things are composites, first of all, of form, which means their actuality, and matter, potentiality. Absolute time of itself, in the sense of existing independently of matter in the universe, makes no sense ontologically. Einstein, a deeply honest man, was led to this, that which Aristotle and Aquinas knew long before, through his investigations in formulating the special theory of relativity. Now, in terms of the predictive efficacy of the mathematical models employed by both the theories of special relativity and general relativity, there is no problem at all. It's in their job description, so to speak. But a problem does occur when the mathematical models take on lives of their own, attempting to directly dictate the ontological status of observed phenomena, the reification problem which uh, Professor Carroll raised, including the grossly incorrect ontological equivocation of matter and energy. It is the tiny little equal sign which wrecks havoc. When employed correctly, it indicates a mathematical relationship, as it should, which is uh, obtained from correlated measurements. But it most certainly does not dictate ontological status, although certainly some insight may be provided into the natures of the objects or phenomena thus related. One cannot credibly claim, quote, that space-time is no less physical than rocks or trees, because merely, uh, merely because the accidents of real being known as position and time, have been mathematically combined into a tensor. If this were true, then any combination of accidents could be considered as existence on their own right, namely substances. For example, physicists have long combined the three spatial dim dimensions, meaning the metric of position, with time, meaning again the metric of change, into ma to mathematically describe velocity. Does this make velocity a substance? simply because we can, and we should, we should for the purposes of descriptive and predictive efficacy for physics, does this make velocity of sub, uh, substance, uh, make it a substance simply because uh, we, can, we can measure things and we can mathematicize them? Yet this fallacy persists. Okay? The energy momentum tensor used to describe relativistic phenomena is not any closer to being a substance simply because the mathematics is more sophisticated. That would be the imperiometric equivalent of cl claiming size matters. Right? I, as a nuclear engineer, at some point had to deal with um, neutron currents, neutron diffusion equations, differential equations that dealt with those. We had to, by necessity, in their full-blown uh, full uh, form, employ seven dimensions. But that in no way suggested that there were seven dimensions. Okay. Special relativity in its purely imperiometric form assigns equal value to all reference frames, although we are free to choose a preferred frame without altering the mathematics and hence the predictive efficacy. But here's the problem. If all frames of reference are identical, to conclude that they are really, meaning ontologically equivalent, is absurd. Because, among other things, space and time could be converted into each other merely by moving at a different uniform rate. Time is, again, the metric of motion. Space is the object obtained by leaving behind all accidents except quantity. 
including the quality of motion. And both of these are useful for developing mathematical models of physical phenomena. But neither space nor time exist without matter. Time and space are completely distinct ontologically, but this should not stop anyone from conceptualizing uh, time and space mathematically for the purposes of doing the good work of special and general relativity. Physicists must, uh, must be cognizant of the fact that space-time is, is not a, quote, no less physical than rocks and magnets, unquote. We can make a concept that we call physical space as long as we physicists ground ourselves in reality by understanding this mathematically based physical space is part of, an, uh, part of a theory, a mathematical model, and it is a construct that cannot exist outside the mind. Further, non-Euclidean geometry is not abstracted from the real world because it does not exist in the real world, i.e. outside the mind, in a direct ontological way. Euclidean geometry does exist in the real world, but merely in the sense that it exists in things from which we abstract it. We abstract Euclidean geometry from the physical world and then cobble together the non-Euclidean geometries in order to produce uh, mathematical formalisms that are useful for our work. Take the concrete case of the use of mathematical manifolds in general relativity. A manifold, in fact, is nothing but a mathematical construct that each near point is close to Euclidean geometry. Much of my professional career before coming to teach depended on the conver conversion of matter to energy, understood on a crude level through Einstein's famous E equals mc squared equation. The equivocation in mathematics is fine because you're dealing with the, re with the uh, relationship of numbers. But the ontological equiv equivocation is a train wreck. The equation does not and cannot dictate that energy is matter. It merely describes a balanced relationship when one ontological entity converts to another. I employ the relationship to determine how many joules of energy I obtain when a certain number of kilograms of matter undergo a substantial change, as opposed to an accidental. Change of a particular, uh, through a particular process that converts matter to energy. But matter and energy cannot uh, be the same thing at the same time in the same manner, period. Consider the following absolutely mathematically equivalent expressions for energy. E, and I don't um, wish to remind or create ni nightmares for some of you from your physics uh, before, but E equals one-half mv squared, kinetic energy. E equals one-half kx squared, spring potential energy. E equals one-half cv squared, energy contained in the electrical field of a capacitor. E equals one-half Li squared, the energy contained in the magnetic field of an inductor. Mathematically, absolutely identical. All of these describe and quantify energy, the quality known as the capacity to do work, of different physical systems. But to suggest that energy is mass, is the spring constant, is capacitance, is inductance, would be problematic. The fact that these expressions are mathematically identical does not in any way imbue mathematics with an ability to impart ontological status. Rather, the mathematics reflects an underlying orderliness of the physical world. It is the orderliness that is fundamentally more important because all the sciences presuppose an orderliness to, the real, to do the real work. It is the orderliness of the teleological character of real beings that Aquinas uses to point to the author of the orderliness of the universe through his fifth way. 
orderliness is presupposed by the modern empirical sciences, but the, but the modern empirical sciences cannot explain orderliness in any deep ontological sense. No empiriological formalism, no matter its descriptive and predictive efficacy, can actualize reality. No mathematical formalism, quote unquote, governs the behavior of such and such. There is no such thing, apart from possibly in the mind of God, there is no such thing as a quote unquote law of nature, except as a metaphor to help us understand the orderliness of reality manifesting itself how? Manifesting itself through the actualizations of individual natures. A, a systematization of measurements is not the final explanation one seeks. Now, if you think this is all benign stuff, or a tempest in a, teapot, uh, in a teacup for the physicist, listen closely to the following quotations. Consider Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg's description of himself as being, quote, pretty strongly platonic, unquote, saying he thinks the laws of nature are as, quote, real as the rocks in the field, unquote. I would love to see him stub his toe on one of those rocks. Consider Max Tegmark, cosmologist at MIT, speculating that mathematics does not describe the universe. It is the universe. Quote, everything in our world is purely mathematical, including you, unquote. He's been watching too many reruns of The Matrix. <laughs> Consider the irrational, and I mean literally irrational, claim uh, by MIT cosmologist Alan Guth, quote, the entire universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere, unquote. <laughs> do, do you understand how irrational that is? He's not saying that the universe came from God, from the flying spaghetti monster, from a neutrino. He said nothing created it. Consider the scientific philosopher Quentin Smith's assertion, quote, there is sufficient evidence at present to justify the belief that the universe began to exist without being caused to do so, unquote. This year, in a trade journal of physicists, the American Journal of Physics, June 9th, a physicist wrote the following, quote, the most fundamental difference between classical and quantum mechanics is that, and listen very carefully, it's technical, but listen, the difference is, the former makes use of phase space whose of individual points represent possible states of a physical system which subsets of points representing physical properties. While the latter uses a complex Hilbert space and physical properties corresponding to a subspaces with one-dimensional uh, subspace rays, the quantum uh, analog of a single point in phase space. Yes, that's correct for physics, but note carefully what he just said. He said, the so-called, and he uses the terms fundamental difference, is tied neither to what classical and quantum mechanics are themselves, nor is it tied to what objects they study. Rather, the quote fundamental difference is directly tied to the mathematical formalisms employed to describe the behavior of the objects in these two realms. The mathematics is ruling the day. And, since I'm an equal opportunity gadfly, I'd like to spend a minute on quantum mechanics as well. The so-called Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics states that objects have no properties of themselves, but claims that properties exist only in conjunction with measuring devices and not until measured, in other words, observed. 
Hence, we have Cornell physicist N. David Merriman's philosophically inept assertion, quote, we now know the moon is demonstrably not there when nobody is looking, unquote. <laughs> this is just another example of permitting an imperiometric theory to bypass sober thinking by assuming it provides direct access to the real. In layman's terms, it confuses the map with the territory. And by the way, here's an interesting note. The role of the Copenhagen interpretation plays in quantum mechanics is similar to the role that Darwinism plays in animating the notion that God does not exist, supposedly because Darwinian theory proper, meaning descent with modification, proves it. Professor Keebler addressed this beautifully. Okay? And, I, and I believe Professor Plantinga will, will address this as well. Darwinism tries to unscientifically eliminate God. The Copenhagen interpretation tries to unscientifically eliminate causality. People are more familiar with the philosophical naturalism animating Darwinism. They are much less familiar, because it's further from their typical everyday experiences, with the strange concoction of positivism and neo-Kantianism that animate the Copenhagen interpretation. I can't think of a better way to ruin science than to permit such ideas free reign. To eliminate causality through Copenhagen and to eliminate universal cause through Darwinism is to eliminate not just science, fear of exaggeration notwithstanding, it's to eliminate everything. For heaven's sakes, science is knowledge through, wait for it, causes. So, in the end, what does, what does this assistance from the philosophy of nature suggest regarding the questions Professor Barr poses at the beginning of his talk? Namely, how can science affect theology? First, the natural science, scientists must acknowledge philosophy and theology are sciences in their own right. Second, while the natural sciences can certainly deepen our insights into the natures of material objects and physical phenomena, it is much less clear that the natural sciences can alter the philosophical fundamentals upon which they themselves depend. Fundamentals worked out long before the so-called scientific revolution. Fundamentals which in fact made the scientific revolution possible. For example, no biological science can directly inform philosophy and theology what a person is, but they can provide deep insights into what human beings are. The biological sciences may be able to tell us that embryonic stem cell research is possible, but whether we ought to do such research, no natural science can dictate. Physics cannot topple the principle of sufficient reason for, if anything else, physics appeals to this principle and others for its work. Physics may provide us very interesting insights. We will have to question how we understand causality, but it can't topple causality because it topples itself. One minute. Our most sophisticated remote sensing technologies may be able to tell us what weapons of mass destruction exist in Iran, but no natural science can tell us, apart from operational considerations, what to do with those weapons. Finally, Realist philosophers should listen and learn from scientists about the, uh, about the real world. St. Thomas would certainly approve and encourage this. The premises of his five ways started in the senses and rose upon both wings of faith and reason to God. St. Thomas, in fact all the schoolmen, would, I fear, be scandalized if theology or, or philosophy students at any university did not take at least one science course or one mathematics course. Christianity, after all, is an integrating and expansive faith. 
not a territoriality or divide and conquer faith. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.